Here we go, kicking it off again for another year with Spirited Conversations podcast. I wanted to let you all know that the new cohort for the Stepsy training has just begun. So if you are interested in that, get hold of DFX ASAP. We've got a link for you in the description. And if you have been holding out for the spirit model and taking that in a cohort form, which means you get to do the course with a group of people and actually meet live online in real time and discuss the model together, the new cohort will open in the Australian springtime and in fall for all of our American listeners. If taking either of those courses in the cohort form just isn't going to work for you this time, don't be discouraged because both courses are also available and will be available this whole year to take in a self-paced version. So if you're keen to do that, jump onto the link and check it all out. But without further ado, let's jump in to today. Oh, hey guys. We have had lots of um, listener questions. So we are going to do our usual thing. We'll be prompted by the listener questions, which is around sensory modulation and the language we use to describe that, which, you know, reflects how we think about it. So someone has asked around, um, sensory modulation, over responding and under responding. We've had questions around sensory diets. How do you use a sensory diet? And we want to think about that in terms of how's it positioned in a broader context of our intervention planning. We've had questions around arousal and autonomic functions and impact on sensory modulation and which comes first. So we are going to have a mismatch and trying to see if we can answer a few questions at the same time because they're somewhat all related. So here we go. What When most of us say somebody's over-responding or under-responding, we're actually commenting on their behaviour. Yes. And say that it's sensory modulation, but it's not really sensory modulation. It's the behavioral Mm. outcome of the sensory modulation and regulatory functions working. Mm. And so that is really complicated. The thing that's so interesting is that in the OT literature, when I went back and looked at the definitions from some of the key people who write about this from kind of an academic perspective, they always, to me, because my training in neuroscience was so specific mm. in making sure that you knew the level of analysis that you mm. were speaking about. Mm. And you guys have heard me talk about mm. that before. It is a hard, hard, hard thing to do. But truthfully, when I went back and reread people who I admire and respect but I reread this morning and the actual definitions that they're using are blending across levels of analysis. And the definitions that they'll write will be something like hypo responsivity or hyper responsivity as noted by this behavioral mm, response. Mm, right. So they're jumping from level of the modulation response to the level of behavior. And I know that the only thing we can objectively see is behavior. We don't have tools for measuring what's happening. Mm. And so I think that in my own mind, 
I'm thinking about the neurological definitions mm. that are not from OTs, mm. but from neuroscience around over and under responding. And those are not the same as how an OT writer is mm. writing it. Mm. And that confusion is a real confusion. Mm. And, and I was at a, at a symposium recently where somebody that I admire greatly was talking about kind of how the window of tolerance might function in a dynamic manner, but they were mixing autonomic functions, behavioral functions, sensory modulation functions without differentiating mm. them. Mm. So I, I think that in my own work, what I've been trying to do is help all of us to be a little bit more precise and differentiate these mm. concepts. And for some people, that complexity is not welcome. It's not like an easy place to go. Mm. What we're wrestling with here is that terminology is complex. And really, we don't have enough science in our OT field to fully translate. We're working in this translational space, basically, mm. between basic neuroscience and how kids develop. Mm. And, and it's really complicated. And I wouldn't, I'm not trying to claim that I have a better understanding. I just have a different level of training from my own graduate training that was very specific in trying to get the people in my field of developmental neuroscience to think across levels of analysis. And so that's something that I feel like I have tried to offer. So... Mm. It's confusing. And I think that for the sake of treatment, where I think our passions align, the three of us, and where we feel like this podcast really is relevant, is that if a therapist anywhere, so I recently, oh, I'm going to just insert this cute story here because <laughs> I recently got the sweetest email from a therapist in Hong Kong who told me that in the last a bit of time, her team of 12 had just decided to listen to the podcast as they're continuing ed. They gather as a group and they chat about it and they've become real fans of the information. And like many people, when listening to it, they're like, whoa, wait a minute. I don't know if I know that, but it's cool to think about that. So the reason that we do this is because we love to, to talk about this stuff, but yeah. also it advances practice for people. And where the practice related to sensory modulation gets tricky is that if your clinical reasoning isn't right, you'll do the wrong thing in treatment. Yeah. If a kid is over-responsive because they're defensive, that treatment looks different than if they're over-responsive because they're curious and engaged, but mm. they can't land their orienting mm. into action plans and into the higher level processing. And that transcends sensory modulation mm. into higher capacity. Yeah. So that's what a tool like the spirit that helps us to make the connections between the sensory process itself and how it integrates into adaptive function. Mm, yeah. Because yeah. that sensory stuff matters if it's not connected and integrated. Mm. And so the same is true with under responding mm -hmm. that we, we may under respond because we're protecting ourselves 
And if we under-respond because we're protected and we're in a dorsal state, the treatment is not to bombard sensation. Mm. The treatment is not to create bigger intensity. Yeah. Uh, well, you can put somebody into farther shutdown, mm. which happens to be death, right? Mm. Um, or, or catastrophic catatonia and really shutting off from the world. Mm. If you're under responsive because you are, your nervous system is slowed in the processing to create salience, but it, the salience is meaningful to you. Mm. You just have to have it at a slower pace mm. or a different kind of salience pace. That's a different treatment plan. Yeah. So, we have to differentiate based on valence and our field really is doing a disservice if we don't start to identify sensory modulation issues based on this distinction. And, and I just think that that's like, it's okay to just be clear about that and not be confrontational about it. But just to say, we can't keep saying over and under responding, it's not going to help us to be able to offer the life-changing interventions that we can offer. And when we get it wrong, it can be catastrophic. Mm, so we need better definitions around the actual functions and separating that from the behavior. So that like, that's a really Mm. key thing that I think you said earlier was that the definition involved both the neurological process and the behavior, but the actual mm. neurological theory is is not embedded in the behavior. So it's really useful for me to have those two as different pieces to mm. see and evaluate. One of the things that I think we all can struggle with in a moment, in a therapeutic assessment or in a moment in therapy or just even later in reflective work that we're doing, is what is the sequence or and or when does sensory modulation do its work so that sensory discrimination can do its work? And what comes yeah. first? It's sort of a chicken yeah. or the egg question, right? Um, yeah. So mm. sometimes with kids in the clinic, you can have a kiddo who looks quite avoidant and over-responsive, let's say, to sensation. And you can find it hard to help them find engagement. And that could be related not to sensation at all. It could be Mm. fully only related to autonomic neuroceptive processing that's telling them something's not safe. The sensation could be not safe, but it could be something else. It could be Mm. anything else. So we as OTs often assume that it's sensory, when sometimes it isn't. And when it shows up in behavior, it's easy to code it as sensory when maybe it could be different than that. I wanted to kind of bring us back to just the idea of whether I feel safe or not. That is the intervening factor around modulation. I think that's what you said. Or is that not quite right? So... If we think about neuroception as the detecting factor for safety and threat that then helps to draw the resources of the whole system, but Mm. set the tone and the state of the autonomic nervous system. 
So the thing that is tricky here is, mm. so yes, you said it right, but it's not just the safety threat. It's the activation, deactivation related mm. to that. So now the state is a reflection of what was detected by the mm. neuroceptive functions. And neuroception is drawing from sensory modulation. Let's say there's novelty happening. There's somebody in the hallway that you're not recognizing the foot pattern of. You're unfamiliar. Your nervous system will say there's something afoot. There's something out there that needs to be more deeply detected and surveilled. And so let's mobilize some resources in that direction. And as it does that, the sensory modulation function actually becomes sensitized. It's like, mm. I need more information. Mm-hmm. Your whole nervous system needs more information. And whatever your central nervous system was engaged in, let's say that you were writing a letter or painting a picture or cooking dinner or harvesting your garden, whatever the thing you were involved in doing that was drawing all of the rest of your resources, those are put into a not important category anymore. And the orienting responses are shifted away from that toward the Mm. thing that now has become salient. That shifting that's happening then is happening across lots and lots and lots of different functions in your brain, not just sensory. It's Mm. everything would shift. So your motor responses are shifted toward it, your language processing, your memory processing, your attention your social I'm landing this on like literally just my actual experience sorry to interrupt you Trace, of the last couple of days being slightly sick and lying on the couch feeling unwell <laughs> and obviously lacking in metabolic resources and whatever else is happening when you're sick and um just having your, my eyes closed and listening to an audiobook and any slight banging of a door which usually like doesn't orient me in any particular way growing up in a pretty rambunctious loud kind of house (laughs) I was just completely like full morrow jumping orienting what was that in just because of the way my nervous system was in that state of Mm -hmm. feeling unwell so I was like oh yeah it was because in a time when I'm well and I have the full capacity to be more fluid, I guess, in the way that my nervous system is just taking in and responding. And my memory knows, like you, cause you were talking about draws from our memory functions. So like it knows the sound of that. I don't need to worry about it. I can still attune to the audiobook that I'm listening to. And I don't even really pick up the other noises or, um, yeah, it just was like, oh, that resonates so much right now <laughs> with just having been sick. So and socially, like I felt irritated at anybody that was shutting a door. I'm like, what are you, why are you shutting the door so loud? Like it's unnecessary. Like, even though normally it was just, that's exactly how that would always be shut, you know? So it's kind of interesting how that shifts everything. Anyway. It totally is. It also really shows that the sensory over response you were having in those moments was driven by the state. So the intervening Mm -hmm. variable of state was changing the stimulus response formula. And it also shows you that the sensory modulation response is not neutral. It Mm -hmm. is valence-based. You were irritated. Um, So we can 
we can enjoy sensation. We can feel soothed by sensation. We can relish sensation. We can reject sensation. It has an affective tone to it. So sensory mm-hmm. modulation, I think having the nosology that has been the SPD nosology being retired recently, mm-hmm. one of the welcome pieces of that is just that this over-under function is really not the right characterization neurologically. Because we know that at the foundation of sensory modulation, there is an affective dual coding Mm -hmm. and that is the valence of the sensation with the affective tone to it and that is connected to neuroception so how our sensory modulation contributes to our state is very intermingled there and you would Mm -hmm. be quite hard pressed to super separate it out at the level of behavior it would almost be impossible to separate it at the level of behavioral observation. Am I seeing a sensory issue there? Am I seeing autonomic? Am I seeing mm. affect? Mm. You're seeing it all. And then through testing, observation, good clinical intuition, you might be able to figure out what's driving what so that you can get to the source for good treatment. Because it, if in that, like, let's take your experience, Corey, that you just described to us and yeah. bring it to one of our clients. And maybe we would call that like misophonia. They're really irritated by the sounds that human beings are making around them. So in that, is the solution to address it auditorily? Possibly. But there's mm-hmm. more to it there, right? There's a lot mm-hmm. around affective and physiological regulation and mm. getting into a ventral state so that you're not quite so triggerable in that mm. irritation. Mm. And so if you're in a ventral state, those things that are triggering a negative sensory affective experience may no longer continue to trigger it. So then we wouldn't think of it as being driven by sensation. We would be, think about it as being driven by state. Does that, mm. Is that all clicking yeah. for everybody? Mm. It does for, for me. I do wonder about um, maybe unpacking a little bit more just in terms of the way people think about sensory modulation. I don't know. I'm just thinking about for, for anybody that's using the words they're over or under responsive, how do we help kind of update them? <laughs> like how do we give them the information that they need to come to think about that in a different way now? especially if they've never heard before, like positive and negative valence response. I have some new teammates here at DFX in Denver. And this question came up, you know, how do I explain or how should I be thinking about it? So the first thing that I suggested was to honor exactly where they're at right now, because a starting spot is a good spot to be at. And so if the word you're using is over or under, then just use it until the curiosity that I want to plant in your mind is more crystallized. And that first level of curiosity would be to say, if you see a child having an over response, is it over in a approach way or is it over in an avoid way? Is it over in a 
I'm curious and interested in and just can't get enough of that way? Or is it over in a, that is awful and um, negative for me, defensive for me? So clever, Tracy, bringing in the valence of the (laughs) over or the under. Is that what you're kind of trying to do there? Yeah. Get the tone of the behavior. What's the tone in terms of positive or negative valence? That's exactly right. Because defensive over responding is not at all the same as curious over responding. Mm. And how you would treat those two things actually would be very different from each Mm. other. Right. Um, Mm. So should we give like a, a, like actual child example of the classic defensive over responding automatic things that come to mind are just like clapping hands over ears um, or ripping clothing off or hating socks and shoes hating fingernail cutting or haircuts or any of that comes to mind. Am I missing any others, Michelle, that are helpful? No, that auditory tactile um, defensive patterns are classic, I guess. They're the ones that um, impact on function the most as well and are harder to understand for educators and parents, I think. So, yeah, good classic one. Yeah, you could also think about defensiveness in the vestibular function with I was more say, like gravitational goes, insecurity. Yeah, under the radar more though. I feel like kids can work around that one much more readily, like in terms of if they've got enough kind of capacity or strengths, they can kind of figure out ways around the – it still crops up, but it just it, – like mm. I feel like the tactile and auditory ones um, – parents will bring that to me more and I'll see the vestibular gravitational mm-hmm. kind of issue from my clinical side that doesn't always show up in just observations from the everyday people around because sometimes it's less problematic because they're actually just a yeah. bit more passive they, then <laughs> and yeah. so then they they enjoy drawing and doing other things which can be yeah. much easier yes to have a child doing passive play um than the opposite, you know, on the go or or that auditory and tactile defensive that really you can't miss that in day-to-day life with getting dressed and, you know, travelling to school or preschool or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's more classic defensive over response. I'm quotation marking those. But then what what was the other one? Over response but like approach. Yeah, but without a negative valence to it. Really what it is, is it's that kid who is o- over-oriented to every salient stimulus all around them constantly, but they don't really land it. Um, so you see this mm. kind of like squirrel, 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 mm. squirrel, yeah. squirrel, mm. squirrel. And it can happen visually. It can happen auditorily. It can happen tactically. It can happen vestibularly and proprioceptively. So it's what happens is that the, the sequence and processing should be that we constantly surveil and detect stimulus around us. And as we detect the stimulus, then we have an orienting response that draws us into engagement. Or okay. if there's a negative response, we have a defensive response. So that's the valence, is you yeah. have a defensive response or an orienting response. 
sensory modulation then should kindle the regulation so that if you orient to that cool thing over there, that then that draws you in for the purpose of engagement, which is the outcome of sensory modulation. And then we begin the praxis sensory discrimination based functions that help our engagement to become really purposeful and skillful and higher level. So there is a little bit of a sequencing that happens there. Um, So we are drawn to the stimulus. So the over-responding kid can be like a ping pong, ping, 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 but they don't engage enough for that to become meaningful. And so Mm. they just continue to be over-responsive instead of I respond and I engage. I respond and I land in habituation. So both of those functions are mediated by habituation and down regulation. If you orient, then you should settle into engagement. If you have a defensive response, you should find protection and then move away from continuing to over-respond. So over-response shouldn't continue. It should be mediated by the response that is drawn from the resourcing of the response. It also, for me, brings up that in my own kind of reading of the literature, I feel like the OT interpretation of sensory modulation has been too focused on the response and not enough on the whole picture of how the response and the recovery Mm. connected to a purpose is working. So if your nervous system over-orients, over-responds, and then the sensory modulation function isn't helping to create that ease of now land on what that information is and now put it to use. So there's a lot of micro inhibition that's happening Mm. right there in the processing circuitry for a brain that can do that well. And for our kids, I think that is not working well. It's those little micro inhibitory or facilitatory, depending, processes that are sensory affective in nature, and they're Mm. connected to the state that we're in. So it does vary a little bit. And we all know that to be true, that when we're working with kids with these so-called sensory modulation issues, that there is variability based on their state. I think that as the science progresses, we need to focus a whole lot more on the recovery and on those micro processes, at least on a science level. Now, what we need Mm -hmm. to work on in treatment is differentiating what we've just described, which is basically Mm -hmm. if you have a child where you originally would have said, oh my goodness, I see over-responsivity here, characterize it as positive or negative valence-based, right? Is it Mm -hmm. a defensive response or is it an over-orientation that they're not Mm -hmm. turning into meaning? And Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. that actually paints the picture for you for what your treatment plan should look like. Because if it's a defensive characterization, what you need to treat is how do we uncouple a negative response and help it to become a safe response? Mm. So we're treating through safety. 
In the other side, we're treating through engagement and through building attention and participation. So that's, to me, a really important distinction. And I think that it does make us better clinicians when we challenge ourselves to go to that level of definition. I don't think that's too much detail. I think it's Hmm. the right thing for treatment planning. Does that connect for you guys? Mm. Yeah, it really connects to me. I guess when I started working in paediatrics, sensory integration was the new thing for me. And so I started learning about children and profiles and behavior and, you know, trying to uncover or work out what I was seeing and why from a sensory integration perspective, which was fascinating and amazing and part of the piece. And then I did the DR floor time that was like amped up. Oh, relate to this effective lens I was looking at. And I guess it's only been since understanding polyvagal theory or trying to get my head around that, that I don't go to sensation first necessarily. It's like coming back and looking at that valency approach and defensive or withdrawal and then working out on my dashboard. My son's 18 and so we've just had this DJ and this dashboard is, you know, how I view the, the brain, I guess, the decks. <laughs> and so I'm not I'm not on the sensory integration deck. Like that is a, one of the toggles on the deck and I'm not on the affective, you know, toggle. I'm standing back and I'm the operator going, oh, what's happening here? So my example with the kiddo, we were doing a new little activity during the week in a school and they got the giggles. And in that example, they actually just couldn't move on. It was an approach and it was positive and they were staying with me, but they actually just couldn't modulate or dampen down that affective and arousal piece. And so they just kept giggling looking at me, giggle, 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 and it kind of turned into this giggle game, but it was not. She couldn't get it back together to join in the little rolling game that we were doing. Like it was rolling. It wasn't wasn't (laughs) actually really a giggle game. It was perceived by that, by her uh, sensory modulation, I guess, but um, it was only because I was standing back at the DJ that it was like, you know what, I think that was – sensory modulation started that cascade from her to be a bit more sympathetically activated her behavior was very effective she got the giggles but couldn't regulate and re-engage to join back with me and continue participating in the rolling activity that we were doing I just come at it from a polyvagal theory now which doesn't have me locked into thinking automatically it's sensory modulation and it was the vestib movement. So I just have more parts to consider so that I hopefully am coming at it right, that I can go, you know what, I think the sensory modulation, particularly vestib, activated that and her behaviour was triggered an affective response to that massive giggle and she couldn't habituate or recover from an affective perspective so then we couldn't move on she couldn't re-regulate and we couldn't try it again how did you recover her little nervous system 
I stopped giggling. Like I just started smiling with her. Initially it was contagious because it was it was like oh, it was just a surprise. Well, it wasn't a surprise. I expected it. But um yeah, I just calmed me down and my affect down and just kind of dampened, dampened, dampened to like look at her and be present. But I just stopped the contagion of the giggle and she came back. She couldn't do it again though. She just was like, no it's too much or she didn't say too much but I actually think it was too much yeah I don't know that if that was helpful but I think if you just for me the the real awakening was if I need to get further back in the landscape I have to get back and come at this from more polyvagal approach defense and then go to the next kind of level mobilized um, deactivate and then, okay, well, what was about that? How did that cascade? What was a domino's effect? And, and was it primarily a sensory modulation, specifically vestibular, specifically rot- rotary input that was a trigger for that that looked like an over-responsive behavioural response, you know, the giggle? Yeah, so I, I think a couple things. One is that safety Getting to safety may come from recovery. If you're over-responding and things feel awful to you and you keep over-responding, it's probably because your nervous system is shifted and saying you're not safe. So you're going to keep over-responding because the Mm. nervous system needs to detect the threats that are out there. And it'll Mm. keep doing that because it's super automatic and it's happening nanosecond to nanosecond to nanosecond. And if, if you keep doing that, eventually you might get all the way to the point where you're not responding anymore and you're shutting mm. off. And so mm. those that cascade, we have to be able to view it and notice it as clinicians. Where are they at in that response recovery cycle in relation to the state that they're in? And then we know that the treatment is always safety. So I think the step SI mnemonic, you can start with sensation because it's a powerhouse, but mm. for a lot of people, interaction is the powerhouse. Mm. Um, for some people, predictability is the powerhouse uh, because familiarity and repeated patterns are helpful to creating safety mm. in the nervous system when they're safe patterns. So yeah, but you can also, for some people, task structure or environmental Mm. changes, our attitude of playfulness, our attitude of love and our offering ventral as co-regulators and that co-regulation space, it becomes super, super important. So I think, you know, the treatment is getting them back into safety so that you can then help them to down-regulate or match their state to their response so that it starts to feel right. It's the mismatch that feels really triggering and can re-put you into a state of alert and a lack of safety. So Mm. returning to safety, getting a match, feeling seen and co-regulated and felt and understood, and then helping the body to return to the rhythms of basic regulation, the rhythms of safety, whatever that might be at the moment. Knowing about the different states is helpful because if somebody has gone all the way into a shutdown, you're going to probably have to go through some level of activation and irritability and Mm. in order to get back to ventral. I think, Michelle, the example you gave of 
kind of noticing and then saying, okay, I'm going to be present in a ventral state, but not overly join this sympathetic drive that this kiddo is mm-hmm. having, um, was a really important reflective moment for you to find that and offer ventral based safety without that ever having a judgment tone, without that ever having mm-hmm. a, I don't understand where you're at right now, kiddo, but here's where things are going to feel better whatever better means at that moment. Yeah. So then as you go through all of sensations, sensations big, right? Because we have every domain. And so for one kiddo, what feels safe to them may be very different than what feels Mm -hmm. safe for another child. So when we start treatment planning, the mnemonic S-T-E-P-P-S-I can help you to say, what are the resources that I can tap into here? What do I know about this child and their nervous system and what might bring them back to feeling safe? Then how can we continue that tone of safety as we move into what are we going to focus on next? Are we going to really focus on regulation for a while or are are we good now because we've reestablished safety so we can carry forward in other ways of being in the world that might include engagement and challenges and whatever those moments might be. Okay, so that that's sort of a way that we would think about treatment planning for a kiddo that is having the defensive over response mm-hmm. in a negative tone and it's disrupting them in lots of ways. So we've gone through the step SI, we're figuring out what's the powerhouse that helps them with recovery, sensation, what about the task, what about the environment, what about predictability, how much playfulness do they need, what type of interaction. So like you're going through that to then make a plan and then I kind of call it a recipe, the recipe for that child for recovery. And my recipe is ongoingly adjusted all the time because like you said, sometimes as the state changes, the need for the task to be so predictable will change or the need for the amount or the intensity of the sensation will change or the the need for the environment to stay exactly the same will change. So I guess I just wanted to clarify quickly with this sensory diet. The idea is that doing that repetitively and often enough, creating the safety will help develop the neuroplasticity around recovery. Is that right, Tracy? Or... How should I think about that? Every time that we go into a question, I'm always like, whoa, there's so many things to talk about here. So sorry about that. (laughs) No, Um, that's fine. So yeah, I guess the foundational idea of the sensory diet would be that through timing and repetition, that you can help the nervous system to recalibrate to the set point that is more adaptive than what has Mm -hmm. been going on. So mm-hmm. if the characterization of the difficulty is that the person keeps moving into over-response, over-response, over-response in a negative mm-hmm. way, such that they're really in a state of protection, they're really not available, mm-hmm. the idea would be that you would get in front of the arc of that messy mm-hmm. response pattern and help to reestablish a better kind of calibration around a more regulated response. And so that's one of the really important purposes potentially in the sensory diet. 
I think that when Pat Wilbarger first thought about that terminology, it was before this era that we're in now that is a deeply relational neuroscience Mm -hmm. era. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, when I'm providing a sensory diet, it's almost always a sensory social diet. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it has that quality of co-regulation as being the guide. And then the sensation is used as a powerhouse for the nervous system to get the regulatory, maybe that's recovery input, maybe that's habituation. Mm. Maybe we need to give a habituation signal, but I'm not going to do that out of the context of relationship. And so I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about really a contemporary understanding of sensory diets would include that it's deeply relational and it's deeply responsive so that it isn't like a robot program. I think there's some controversy still around some of this and we don't necessarily have to jump too far into that controversy. What we want to do is say, if I'm working with a kiddo who their daily lived experience is that they move back into dysregulation continually, Mm. why wouldn't my treatment plan include regularizing that? Because otherwise they're just battling that constantly. And if we create programming that helps their nervous system to have a better referent point through co-regulation, through cues of safety, then sometimes we have powerhouse tools. Like we might use the safe and sound protocol, for instance, to Mm. actually neurologically help the nervous system to get the cues that actually signal safety instead Mm. of continuing on this journey of seeking out all of the information that's telling me things are bad. So we have to flip that script and help the child to find safety in the cues around them. And if their neural mechanisms are seeking for negative, we have to adjust that. We can't just Mm. perpetuate that. Since we know better, we can do better and we should Mm. do better. Uh, just in reference to your comments around sensory diet and the context that we're in now, I've probably tended not to talk about the sensory diet. I really yeah. map out this step SI plan for families. Yeah. So I talk about it and sensation is part of it. And I'll be very particular about what that is. So if it's deep pressure, they prefer like a sideways cuddle or they want to be on their own and go underneath the bed with all their soft toys and they want it to be dark and they don't want you to talk to them when you enter the room, like step SI rather than just sensation on its own. Because I, again, for the same reasons as I now think about my deck, (laughs) is I actually want families and teachers to understand the deck too and that it's not just I'm going to give you a steamroller while I'm still teaching maths to the rest of the class. Like it's not that. And so I actually stopped using that phrase, Tracy. So I don't think about it in isolation. But is that remiss of me? Am I leaning too far over to to pull out of the hyper-focus on sensation? Um, you know, for OTs and, and and me, you know, my journey through the process and also educators. So in our programs for educators, for example, or strategy suggestions for educators for kids in schools, we provide the table, the Step SI table, and talk about all their 
strategies under each of the headings, am I making it too difficult or is it putting sensation embedded in a, in, in a context with which it's more appropriate to how the brain works and, and then it's not in isolation? Yeah, no. So I think that the idea of being more comprehensive is clearly kind of my my thing in the world. <laughs> I, uh, I like being comprehensive. Yeah, so the STEPPSI is really helps you to be far more comprehensive. I think where the concept of sensory diet gets things right is when you need to have really careful timing, not rigid, mm. not doing to the child, but mm. that we've carefully analyzed what is that pattern of response yeah. recovery? What is that arousal problem or what is that safety problem? And what's the temporal nature of it? What does it look like yeah. across time? And mm. let me get my intervention plan to create the temporal organization of the response recovery safety yes. arousal profile so that then it actually recalibrates and gives you a, something to work from. So I'm going to do that in the context of relationship, in the context of understanding mm. that the child's in school or whatever. So it takes a lot of work to put it together. Mm. But yeah. the timing and the consistent repetition of timing to say this little nervous system needs inhibition and it needs inhibition not once a week and not just like when they happen yeah. to be cuddling with their parent on the couch, but yeah. that we're going to be really on purpose about cultivating this as a part of their daily life. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that we're contriving it or forcing it. I think that there's so much misunderstanding about this idea of a sensory diet. So you don't mm -hmm. have to call it a sensory diet because what you're doing is far more than a sensory diet, but it's mm -hmm. It's on the theoretical construct is what you're wanting to make mm. a careful decision about. Are you mm. just giving somebody a sensory support plan that is like, good luck to you. Here's some noise canceling headphones, like some therapists treat this yeah. way. And like, yeah. I hope that's enough and that that's going to help you out. Or talk to the movie theater and have a quiet offering so that it's a sensory friendly environment that you get to live in. These are all real things that are happening in our world and all of them are valuable on some level. But we also, I think as therapists who are really charged with treating this issue, we need to sometimes decide that for a moment in time for this next week or year or sometimes whatever the window of time it is, we're going to be really careful and construct a plan here that really mm. makes sure that you find safety over and over and over again. So that becomes your new reference point. So it's that on purpose and really deliberate, proactive provision or opportunity to receive sensation through the day on, on purpose, Trace. That's exactly right. And then, you know, I think for us, we provide a more integrative treatment plan that is going to draw from the other pieces that we've articulated as STEPPSI. You can articulate them in other ways if you would want to. But I think, you know, the, the thing is, is that we have a lot of tools in our kit here. And what mm. we're trying to do is figure out what does the nervous system need as a building 
foundation for establishing regulation that makes sense over time and mm. not simply as a coping skill or an accommodation or like there are mm. different levels and we can make those decisions clinically about what are the resources and what does this little person need and what's in their environment and who's in their environment and what are the possibilities here and sometimes we can't have a full program because there are too many limitations somewhere or the other. And those are real quandaries that we all mm -hmm. run into. So I do think that there's a gradation of programming available to us at our fingertips. Mm -hmm. I actually have mm -hmm. a slide on this that maybe we can pop in the show notes. Yeah. That cool. just shows yeah. like the gradation of home programs that include this more intensive kind of home program. Mm -hmm. And I think that the decision point for me is how restricted is this child's ability to adapt and engage yeah. purposefully in mm. their daily life. And if they really are restricted, then I feel like I have a lot of tools that are going to create an opportunity mm. for that restriction to not be the story of their life. And what mm. a gift is that, right? Yeah. Mm. To live in a space of possibility and you can engage and you have the freedom to be able to yeah. just go to the store and go mm. to the park and put on the clothes and play at the beach yeah. and do all those things. Like that's a gift that we can mm. offer with really concerted intervention. And then we don't have to sort of lighten our approach so much so that we're kind of giving up some of our power, I think. But but there's decisions to be made all the way along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the broader context, like sometimes yeah. when families arrive to us, they're in a really vulnerable state. The child is very restricted. They cannot move into the community. So yeah. the family's not being integrated. They're worn down. I do the, you know, I'll take the family on the journey, but I see um, me doing the work and trying to understand the child and how, you know, how I can provide safety where are the things that are most difficult for them so I can start working. But I have to get movement in the clinic and give mum and dad or carers some time to recover and some hope where it's like, oh, we're starting to move in the direction we're starting. You know, there's yeah. tiny little glimmers they might see only in the sessions with me but they're not yet ready. They're exhausted and not in a um, regulated enough such that they could be a co-regulator throughout a sensory diet, for example, yeah. unless, you know, some kids find things where it's joyful and they run to it and they, it's easy. You just have a ball in the room and they want this, you know, they um, gesture to have a steam roller or um, deep pressure as they lie on the ground from a ball being rolled on them. For example, some of the, things that you can do to dampen down the and help regulate the nervous system there are no work for the family to orchestrate yeah. and have that available well, the other times requests. the child requests and it's yeah. almost like oh and they see it and it's it's really easy other times it, it's all a bit more nuanced and all a little bit harder about how you offer that and don't you know what timing they'll receive that or not but it's just actually not the right time for the family to be laden with a sensory diet or a way that I'm starting to think about how do we co-regulate are we doing that verbally and not by providing eye contact is it a really gentle sideways just being present and slowing our breath rate in a really 
um, subtle way or is it a more obvious co-regulation, you know, where they're asking to sit on your lap and asking for a deep, deep hug and for a little lullaby and rocking. I guess I think about the sensory diet, but the whole of the um, things that we can offer is the system, is that family ready for this and which bits might yeah. be more easy? Because if they're having a harder time being regulated and self-regulated, you know, if a child's head banging, it might be that offering a sensation that the child can do for themselves a bit more without the co-regulator really, you know, the carer really initiating and leading and participating in it so much that dampens down and regulates the child that then allows the carer to come in and can be better matched um, with the nervous system rather than two really vulnerable nervous systems and the parents charged with, you know, trying to help that nervous system where they're not there yet themselves. So sometimes when I'm talking about sensory diet, it's the parents first. <laughs> it's like, okay, how do we get yeah. you regulated? What yeah. sensation works for you? Yeah. You know, including what music can you listen to in the car on the way home yeah. from work before you're walking into this job? Like what's your <laughs> regulation plan, if you like, or your yeah. safety plan? before we even actually start thinking about this for the child. Um, Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Seed Paediatric Services and Developmental FX. For more information, please go to our show notes on our website, spiritedconversationspodcast.com or catch us on our Seed and Developmental FX Facebook or Insta pages. So grateful to have you with us for this episode. Take care and we'll see you next time.